0: Morning, everyone. Welcome to church. How are you doing this morning? Good. So glad that you're here. Thanks to our worship team. Those were awesome songs, man. It was fun to be sitting up in front and just hear. Hear hear the voices of of everyone singing together. So thank you, worship team, for for leading us. Well, hey, if you don't know me, my name is is Andrew. Just wanted to introduce myself. Welcome to anyone who's new to our church for the first time. We're really glad that you are here. Welcome to anyone who's joining us online. I know we still have a a lot of people join us online every single week, so we're so glad that, that you're with us As well, we're gonna continue in our series in the book of Acts. I know for me, this has been such an impactful and challenging series already, and we're four chapters in, we're just getting started. So I'm excited for the rest of the series, and I'm really excited today to get to dive in with you. As I get started, I wanna share just a short story from a few weeks ago. If you remember, we had a child dedication here here a couple weeks ago in in this service, and my wife and I got to dedicate my daughter Ava, which was really special, and it, it was a great service, as it always is when we do child dedications. You know, There were a lot of kids who got dedicated. We had 10 families and 13 kids, which is awesome. Everyone was wearing their Sunday best. We showed cute pictures up on the screen, which was a lot of fun. And as parents, we just felt a huge amount of support and just love from our church community. The only problem is that Ava wasn't quite sure how she felt about about the whole thing. And uh, we were sitting, Right right over here, Kevin and Pam, down by where you guys are, and Stephen Cruzy was leading worship with the team and second song, What a Beautiful Name. Ava started getting restless. And you know, she gets down and she was either so moved by the song or so bored by a church up here not in the nursery that she wanted to start running up and down the aisles. And so Alex and Megan King helped us form a barrier so that she couldn't escape and we kind of we kept her in. And then it came time to come up on stage. I've been on the stage, you know, a number number of times, and I'm normally pretty comfortable. This time I was pretty nervous to see how this was gonna go. And uh, Ava was kind of stunned into silence by the lights and you know the, the eyes of everyone looking at each other. But after about a minute, I could just feel as a parent, and you, you know that feeling when you're holding your little son or daughter and you're like, oh no, they're getting restless. This isn't gonna go well. And so Amber and I passed Ava back and forth. We tried to keep entertained, but there were 10 families and each of them was sharing just a short Bible verse and a prayer request, but it it took a little bit. And so Ava wiggled out of our hands, got down, uh, we figured it was better for her to be walking than like screaming or crying. She actually stood on this projector back here for a little bit and Amber went running over. Um, she went over to the drum set. I'm glad she didn't find the spare drumsticks because that would have been really, really interesting. And we wrestled her back into our arms for our verse and our dedication and someone from our church took this picture, which we will just cherish forever in our family, <laughs> family album. Ava is showing the whole church her diaper, which is just wonderful. Amber's smiling, but she's like, please speed this up. Like, go faster. And Caden is thinking, for once, I'm not the one in trouble. (laughs) And he's also like, his hand is being crushed by my nervous grip right now. (laughs) So yeah, we'll, we'll enjoy remembering that one for a while. As Adam launched into his closing prayer, I made eye contact with him, and I gave him this look that said, please make this a fast prayer. <laughs> and when he said amen, it was just this huge sigh of relief. And as Amber and I were walking off the stage, Amber goes, wow, that was rough. And I was like, yeah, it definitely was, <laughs> but memorable. So Ava, of course, I mean, she was too young to know it, but she was, she was a hesitant, and, and resistant devotee that Sunday morning. She wanted independence, she wanted to be in control, she wanted to be in charge, and that is so how it is with little kids. And I think when we're honest, that's that's kind of how it is when we're adults too. You know, as we think more, more deeply now about devoting ourselves to God, we often want independence, we wanna be in control, we wanna be in charge. God will invite us to devote our, ourselves to him, and we'll say, God, I'm not so sure, I think I'd rather Go stomp on the projector and play with the drumsticks, you know. Or as as we'd say it as adults, God, I don't know. Um, God, you can have part of me, but not all. God, I'm not sure that I can trust you with every part of my heart. I think this can show up in our lives in a variety of ways. You know, maybe you're a believer of Jesus, but your finances have the primary devotion of your heart. Maybe um, you come faithfully on Sunday mornings, but you're more excited for Sunday afternoons when you can watch football or or pursue a hobby. Or maybe God moved in your life in a really powerful way years and years ago, and you were on fire and devoted for him, but as the years have gone on, you've drifted from God. The devotion of your heart has kind of gone more towards something or, or someone else. So God is no longer in first place. Man, there's this fierce and just stubborn independence in all of us, we're prone to wonder, as it says in Come Thou Fount. There's this part of our hearts that really wants to follow Jesus and and give him our all and follow him on the the adventure that he's calling us to, but then there's this other part of our heart that doubts his goodness and love, that wants to keep control to ourselves, and it, it leads us to withhold parts of who we are, and so we stay devoted mostly to ourselves. In our passage today, we're gonna see an incredible invitation to devote ourselves completely to God. We're gonna look at one of the summary passages in the book of Acts. We've already seen one in Acts two, and here at the end of Acts four, we get an awesome summary of what life was like in the early church, and in this short passage, we're gonna see four truths about a church that's completely devoted to God. And we'll kinda walk through those together. I'll I'll unpack them as we come across them in our text. But as we get started here, I wanna frame those four truths with just four words. Committed, surrendered, empowered, and transformed. That's what we're gonna see in these early believers. Man, they were committed and surrendered. They were empowered and transformed. And that's that's what God is inviting us to become today. So let's open our Bibles to Acts 4. We're gonna be in verses 32 to 37, right at the end of the chapter. I'll give you a moment to to turn there. Remember that right now, you know, Acts is such a a, a long book and there's so much that happens, it's easy to kinda get lost where we're at chronologically. We're still very early in Acts to the the beginning of the church, It, it hasn't been all that long since Jesus was crucified and rose again and appeared to his disciples, and then the Holy Spirit comes at, at Pentecost. There's an amazing miracle where Peter and John heal man, and Adam's been unpacking all of that the, the last couple of weeks, and then we're, we're right here, just in, in the first days of the church, and Luke is gonna summarize for us what, what life was like among these early believers. Let's read this together. It says, All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles one the apostles, excuse me, nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Let's take a moment and just pray and ask God to to lead us as we dive into this text together. God, we, we want to pause now in our hearts in the midst of a a busy week for many of us where there's been a lot going on or, or maybe a, a tiring week where we feel weary and we wanna just bring our hearts to you, God. We invite you to speak to us through, through the Holy Spirit, speak through your word. God, bring conviction where we need to hear it, bring encouragement where, where we need it, and we just commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look again at Acts 4.32. It starts off by saying all the believers were united in heart and mind. And the first word that stands out to me there is is all. The whole number, the entirety of the believers were united. And that's a really amazing thing to think about. At this point, we know there were at least 5,000 men who were believers, which is a big number. And so we're thinking, you know, maybe around 10,000, 11,000, 12,000 believers. They were all United in heart and mind. That's a big group to be committed to each other. You know, in, in our context, especially here in a, in a big church, it's easy for some to be committed or, or for some to be united, but God calls all of us to be, be united. The next word that stands out to me is just that word believers. Um, it's not until years later in Acts 11 when this community is first called Christians, So for now, they're simply called believers. This is the community of those who have believed in Jesus, trusted him for forgiveness, and and decided to follow him. And Luke is gonna tell us what life is like amongst them. This shared belief that they have in Jesus, it knits them together with this common bond. They're one heart and one mind, or it could be translated one heart and one soul. These are um, words not that refer to just one specific part of us being devoted to God, but what Luke is trying to emphasize here is they were totally devoted to God. All of who they were, their heart, their mind, their soul, their strength, all of themselves was devoted. And I think he probably uses these words here to kind of intentionally call back to Deuteronomy 6, four through six, which is a really important verse in the Old Testament. It says this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, uh, the Lord is our God, rather. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Here in Deuteronomy and here in Acts, God's inviting total devotion. And this is the first truth that we see in this passage about a completely devoted church. They're completely committed to God and his people. They're they're completely committed to God, and and not only to God, but, but also to the church, to his people. They've given all that they are. They're all in. Now, this kind of Of commitment is amazing and it must have been really fun to be a part of but it was also probably really challenging and I love how honest the book of Acts is about that you know we can look at this passage and say okay was this kind of like a a utopia scenario and and, and not at all there was brokenness and, and division and conflict just like we have in the church today in fact in the very next chapter we're gonna see some of that where Ananias and Sapphira try to take advantage of this generosity that's going on in the church to make themselves look better than, than they really are. And then there's another conflict right after that in Acts chapter six where there's conflict over the distribution of resources. So we have this, this unity, but but also the reality of just a, a large group of, of broken people who are trying to do life and, and do church together. And in some ways that makes the unity and the commitment all the more profound, all, all the more, significant and and important, and that's one of our values here, an undivided mindset, that that heaven is big, that we're not gonna divide over small matters, that we're gonna be united about what matters most. But I think it's important to talk about this reality that this unity just wasn't this kind of idyllic, peaceful, easy thing, because for, for any of you who've been around church for a while, you know that ministry can be hard and truly committing yourself to it all in, it can definitely be challenging. One author put it like this, and I thought this was really insightful. He said, such deep unity is not easy to maintain. If our standards are high, our expectations for each other will also be high. And so consequently, the pain of of disappointment can also be high. And he said this, it's often painful to try to be a Christian community in the way the Bible describes. And and is it good and and beautiful and and amazing and and awesome? Yes, it's all those things too, but man, when we fully, fully give our hearts to something, there's a vulnerability and a a trust there that that actually opens us up to the possibility of of hurt and pain. And, And if you've experienced that, that pain from the past can actually kind of make you hesitant to dive all in again in the future. And I felt this in my own life. When I was in my early 20s, I got the sense that maybe God was calling me to ministry, and I was serving as an intern at a church in Indianapolis and in worship and college ministry, and I was just feeling more excited about life and, and my career and vocation than I ever had before, and I felt like God was calling me to be, to be a pastor. And there was this part of my heart that wanted to follow that, but there was this other part of my heart that was really hesitant, because I had grown up in the church, and I had seen some difficult things happen, and, and a few of those hit close to home, and to be honest, I was scared of being hurt again in the future and, and scared maybe of my family being hurt. And so I was, I, you know, I, I told God, okay, God, maybe, but but I don't know, you know, I'm I'm not 100% sure. Well, fortunately, we went on this retreat where our facilitator encouraged all of us as interns to go just spend an hour with God alone, just listening to his voice. So I went for a hike in, in the woods and about half an hour in, I found myself getting really emotional and just kind of sharing with God some of, some of the pain of, of things that had happened in the past, telling God that I was afraid, that I, that I wanted to, to follow him, but that I was really scared. And it was like God said this to me. It was like he was calling me forward and like he said this, yes, there may be parts of the journey that are difficult and painful, but I will be with you in those moments. Don't you dare let the fear of the future keep you from what I'm calling you to do and to be, because it's gonna be amazing. And then I I felt like he said this, give me your heart, give God's people your heart, and trust me. And so with a lot of fear, I've stepped into that call very imperfectly at times. And there have been times where it's been really challenging, but it has been so good and I don't regret it for a second how I've met God even in the midst of times of of those challenges. So it can be scary to give God our hearts fully, to really give him our hearts. But it is also scary to think about the consequences of keeping our hearts completely to ourselves and and what can actually happen to our hearts if we do this. C.S. Lewis, who always often says things memorably, he, he said it like this, there is no safe investment To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change, it will not be broken, it will become unbreakable. Wow, it's really vivid imagery that he uses there, but that's what can happen to our hearts if we, if we just keep it locked up and totally keep it to ourselves and don't give it to, to any, anyone else, or, or more importantly, to God. And so it, it is a risk, but oh, in taking that risk, we find true love and true joy and and true purpose, and so one of the most courageous things we can do when we've been hurt in the past, either at times when it feels like maybe even we've been hurt by God or or hurt in the church, is to give him and his people our hearts again, because God will meet us there when when we do. So here's a question that I wanna ask kind of on this first point here. Is there an area of my heart that I'm holding back from God or from the church? Is there an area that that, I, that I'm holding back? Or maybe that you're holding back? Excuse me, I've had a bit of a cold lately, so my nose is running. That was a really loud, <laughs> loud snow. <smoke. laughs> Scott, I'll give you the, the cue if you wanna if you wanna mute me next time. Is <laughs> that a very like pointed part of the message too? So okay. Is, Is there an area of my heart that I'm holding back? Maybe it's an area of sin where you're just totally resisting God. Maybe it's not an area of sin specifically, but it's an area of your life where you're keeping God just kind of at arm's length and you're missing out on having him be a part of it. Maybe really practically, God's been leading you to join a small group and you've been holding out on that because you're scared to be fully known or to, to open yourself up to community again. Or maybe there's an area of service of joining God's mission here at First Free that he's been calling you to, but you've been scared to to jump in. And this passage challenges us and invites us to be totally committed to God and to his people. But uh, not just that, there's more uh, that it it challenges us and, and, and pushes us towards. The next thing that we see in this passage is these believers were completely surrendered to God with their possessions. They're they're totally surrendered with what they have. Look with me at verse 32 through 35. It says, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. And then let's skip ahead down to verse 34. We'll come back to verse 33 just a little bit later. It says, there were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to those in need. When I first read that, there were two questions that that came to mind as I was trying to envision this. First of all, okay, did all of the believers sell sell their homes and their land? That feels like a a lot of of people kinda doing that all at once. And then if so, how does this apply to us? Is God calling us to sell our homes and and possessions? I was laughing earlier this week with Kevin that uh, we have budget meetings coming up this week, and we might be excited about you know the sudden increase in options that, that we have if, if that were the case. <laughs> but I, I don't think that's necessarily what this passage is is calling us to do or the specific way to apply it. When we look at the rest of Acts and and even the rest of the New Testament, we see many examples of believers who own homes. So we know that all of the believers didn't sell their lands and homes, or or at least we know that this is descriptive of a moment in the church, and as Adam has said a number of times, maybe not necessarily prescriptive for every single time after that. Most of the scholars and commentators say that what was happening here is that some of the believers who were in a position to do so were selling homes to support those in needs. And you know, in our context, many of us own a home or, or own land, in this context, it's, it's hard to know the exact numbers for sure, but one commentator thought maybe 10% of the believers would have been in a position to do so. You know, owning land, owning a home was, was somewhat rare in that age, it was kind of for the middle class or, or the upper, upper class, and there would have been many, many believers, a uh, of, of vastly great percentage of them, who were very poor who just had trouble making ends meet, especially if they had to leave something behind to follow Jesus in a new way. And so what you had here was some believers who could, who were able, who were giving their possessions to support those who really needed it. And, and that follows the, the pattern that we see in the New Testament. Even in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul encourages the Corinthian believers, hey, those of you who have an abundance, give to those who have need so that when you then have a great need, maybe later on someone who has abundant provision can, can provide for you. So I'm, I'm confident that that is, is what's going on here. I think it's important to note that because some have used this verse incorrectly to advocate for um, getting rid of personal property and kind of a a very uh, totally communal lifestyle. And the giving and sharing that these verses describe here are just completely voluntary. They aren't forced to give, they they desire to give. And we actually see this kind of ironically with Ananias and Sapphira in the very next chapter. Uh, They sell a field, tell the apostles that they are bringing all of it, but they keep back some of it for themselves. And Peter's response is really telling. He says, Ananias, you didn't have to sell this field. And once you did, the money was totally at your disposal to do whatever you want with. So there's nothing that's forced or or mandatory here. Rather, it's just these believers who care so deeply about each other that they want to give to support the believers that are in need. This passage doesn't support a political or an economic philosophy about money or ownership, but it does show us a godly heart posture towards money and, and towards ownership and towards possessions. Look again at verse 32. It says, They felt that what they own was not their own. That is such a biblical, God centered heart posture on money and possessions. They rightly recognize that their possessions are a gift from God. So, how do we apply this? Today. I I don't necessarily think all of us need to, you know, rush home and, and sell our homes, as I said earlier, but this that doesn't make this passage any more significant, any less significant rather, or any less challenging for us. There's this heart posture of surrender here with their possessions, and God calls us to follow that example. We too are called to be totally surrendered to God in our possessions. And for some of us, that may mean that we keep. our our possessions and we try to steward them to the best of our ability, for others that may mean that we're called to sell something of of great value, maybe based on a life circumstance or a specific need that comes up in a ministry or that comes up in in a church or an opportunity to do something great for the kingdom of God. Maybe God would call you to to sell something that you own. We we live in such a time of of just abundance and, and wealth and the opportunities to, to advance God's kingdom right now are, are strategic and incredible, and so maybe God would move in your heart in that way. Maybe, maybe there's a, a specific thing that God is laying it on your heart to let go of, and maybe it's something that initially was good, but maybe it's kind of become less good and that it's stolen more of your heart's affection. You know, maybe there's something that's become a little too important or or way too important in your heart, and God would be leading you to to let go of that and give it to him. So we need to wrestle specifically each of us, I think, how this passage relates. And we should do that in Christian community as we we talk with other believers in our small groups or our life transformation groups or just one-on-one discipleship relationships. That's part of how God speaks to us and leads us. But either way, however God's leading you to apply this, God calls us to be completely surrendered to him. Now, I love the, the next two verses in this passage because we get to meet Barnabas, who is just one of my favorite uh, characters in the New Testament and such an important figure in the book of Acts. And we don't have a ton of time today to go super deep into who he is, but let's look here briefly as Luke introduces him here in verse 36 and, and 37. And we see something in Barnabas that, that is significant. Luke says, for instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought back the money and, and brought the money to the apostles. Now, Like I said, Barnabas becomes a major figure in the book of Acts. He's gonna be so key in bringing Paul or Saul to the apostles. Everywhere he goes, the church is strengthened and and deepened and we'll have more time later to dive into those stories later in the series. But what I love here is that before Barnabas becomes this kind of key figure in this movement, we see him being obedient. We just see him being faithful with what he has. The text just says in verse 37, Barnabas sold a field that he owned and he brought the money to the apostles. What an awesome, simple description of a leader, of someone who's humble and and committed and, and just being obedient with what God has given them. And in that, I think Barnabas became an example for the other believers to follow. And that's probably why Luke mentions him here. There were probably others who said, wow, uh, Barnabas just did this amazing sacrificial thing. He sold an entire field that he owned for God's people. Maybe God's calling me to do that too. One author said this about this specific passage from Acts. He said, communities are often built on the leading example of an important individual. Isn't that an interesting thought? Anytime you have a community, there's often one or or two or three, a handful of people who are kind of driving that community forward, not only with their words, but also with their actions, by setting the tone, by showing others how to to follow through their, their boldness and their courage, specifically in their actions. And I think that that's important for us as we think about what God is doing here at First Free because maybe there's a specific way that God is calling you to be a leading example for our congregation. I really believe that this verse applies not just to the official kind of leaders, those who have a title of our church, but to all of us. There's there's context where God has called you to lead. Maybe it's your small group, your Sunday morning community. Maybe it's a specific ministry like Mops or Junior High or Kid Connection or or Worship or, or Guest Connections. Maybe there's a kind of community here of friends at First Free where God has given you a place of leadership. Maybe it's not here in church, maybe it's at home. Um, Man, kids who are with us this morning, and I see a lot of you guys here this morning, which is awesome, maybe it's in your school. Maybe it's in your third or fourth or fifth or sixth grade classroom that God is calling you to be an example among your friends by the way that you act and by how you follow Jesus, that someone would look at you and say, wow, there's something different about, about that person. Maybe it's, it's just with your friends who, who aren't even believers, but I'm, I'm guessing for you, there's a specific way where God's calling you to be an example, like Barnabas, to show others how to be committed and, and surrender to him. And so I wanna ask another specific question here. Is there a step of obedience God is calling you to take to be an example, to build community here at First Free? Maybe there's a specific step. God, God has laid on your heart for, for a while, and it's time to say yes, it's, it's time, to, time to take that step. Maybe for some that step is trusting Christ for the first time, and maybe God will actually use you as a example to others who don't believe to, to trust in him. It's, it's exciting to think about, and exciting to think about how, how God is work here At work here in this church. There's so much leadership here. That's one of the things that I tell people about our church when they ask me, hey, what's it like at first free? I just say, Man, we have amazing leaders. We have amazing leaders here who just who model the way. So thank you to to all of you who who are a part of that. And let's continue that. Let's continue that legacy. So these believers were committed and they were surrendered. Now I wanna ask a really important question because I think if we miss this, we miss half of what this text is trying to communicate. How do you become that kind of person? How do you really, deeply, truly go all in for God and his people? How are you, you know, how does your heart get to a place where you're just completely committed to him, completely surrendered to him, like Barnabas, like the apostles, like these believers? We, we see a, a couple of answers to that here. Uh, back in verse 33, actually, if you wanna look back at that. In verse 33, it says, the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And this word powerfully is really important because there's a connection here to the Holy Spirit that we don't wanna miss. Do you guys remember in Acts 8 where it says, but you will receive, what does it say? You will receive Power, right. It's the same word there that that is used here. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Luke is making this connection here. He's saying, hey, what I told you was gonna happen in Acts 8, that's happening right now. Here in Acts 43, the apostles are testifying with power and it's gonna continue to happen through Acts as God's people continue to testify powerfully, specifically through the power of of the Holy Spirit and so this is the third characteristic we see of these devoted believers they were completely empowered by the Holy Spirit this wasn't something that they did in and of their own strength yes they were obedient yes they were open they were humble they took steps forward but as they did it was inflamed and just brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit and you know, one of the things that stood out to me as I was studying this, and it's not right on the surface of this text, but I think it's it's there as we look at the whole scope of Scripture, is just the unity between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. There's so much about the Holy Spirit in Acts, and that's, that's so exciting, because in the Old Testament, we learn about God the Father. In the Gospels, we see Jesus the Son, and then the Holy Spirit comes onto the scene in a really big, dramatic way here in the book of Acts. But I think sometimes, we can get this idea that you know Jesus died rose again he ascended into heaven and maybe he's not as involved as he was when he's on earth and that just couldn't be further from the truth Jesus himself is at work empowering this community through the holy spirit look at what it says in John 16 Jesus told his disciples this when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me, from me. Jesus himself is speaking to his disciples in the Holy Spirit. There's such a connection there between Jesus and the Spirit. And it's even stronger in John 14. And I I love what Jesus says here. He told his disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus tells his disciples, through the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna come to you. And and, and yes, it's the Holy Spirit, but yes, it's Jesus coming to them in the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit to comfort and strengthen and encourage them. He's not up in heaven just like watching from afar, detached and disinterested. He's actively involved with his disciples here. And how could he not be? I mean, think of his amazing love for them. Think of all that he sacrificed for them. Wouldn't it make sense that Jesus would want to be actively involved here as they launch the church? So the Spirit is at work, and Jesus himself, united with the Holy Spirit, is is at work so powerfully and i think it's important for us just to pause and and just remember that that same holy spirit is at work in us you know we can think of the holy spirit a little bit um, vaguely at, at times you know he, he maybe the member of the trinity that is the most mysterious for us but let's not let that keep us from this connection that we have to jesus in the holy spirit i mean how cool is that, that we are united to the Holy Spirit and that Jesus himself, through that spirit, is at work in us. He's empowering us, he's teaching us, he's speaking to us, and so we don't wanna miss out on that. We wanna make sure that we're being aware of his presence in our lives, that we're asking him for guidance when there's a really difficult situation, that we're asking him for boldness when when we feel afraid, because we, we can't do this without his help. Man, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then there's one final thing, and again in verse 33 that we see, look at the second part of it. It just simply says, and God's great blessing was upon them all. What an awesome phrase. God's great blessing was upon them all. I was looking a little deeper at that and I realized the word for blessing there is actually the word uh, that is normally translated grace in the New Testament. So God's great grace was upon them all. And the the concept of grace is so rich and so deep. You can translate it in so many ways. God's blessing, God's favor, God's forgiveness, his gifts. It's actually really interesting and, and cool to see how the different versions translate this phrase. The NLT says God's great blessing was upon them all. The NIV says God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. I think my favorite was from the Amplified Bible, which sometimes puts parentheses words and kind of flushes them out a little bit more. It says, God's great grace, God's remarkable loving kindness and favor and goodwill rested richly upon them all. Man, that's what this means. His loving kindness, his favor, his goodwill, it was resting on these believers so powerfully, so deeply. And so that's the fourth characteristic that that we see here. They were completely transformed by God's grace. They they, they were so transformed, and this was so dramatic. Think think with me for a minute about the disciples. Remember that we're not that far chronologically removed from uh, from maybe even just a, a few months ago when they were arguing about which of them was the greatest on the way up to Jerusalem, after Jesus had just taught them about humility. And then this, these were the same men who, who just a little while ago had abandoned Jesus and fled from him, run away, and just kind of left him all alone in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested. Think about Peter, their fearless leader, who here is, he's just so bold and he's so courageous. But just a little while ago, he was the same man who denied Jesus three times, even when Jesus told him that he was going to. How did these men How did this change happen? How can you explain this? I think each of them had such a powerful encounter with God's grace that it just transformed them at the deepest part of who they are. Try to put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples for a minute and think what it would have been like to be one of them, to kind of meet Jesus for the first time, to be intrigued by him, to be curious about him, to be drawn to him in in different ways. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts talking about his kingdom and his forgiveness, and you get the sense of, wow, maybe this this Jesus guy is is bigger and, and more powerful than, than I thought. And then you see his miracles, then the the crushing defeat of seeing him die on, on, on a cross and the confusion of that, he's raised to life again. And then you see, they, they saw him again. I mean, imagine how their hearts must have just like burst to life when they saw him again, both with confusion and then with it, what does this mean, and, and, and excitement he really was who he said, he said he was. But then I think for each of them, there had to be this moment where they grasped the gospel. Like in their hearts, they got it. Like at the core of who they are, not just as a theological concept, that God loved them, and, and that Jesus loved them, and that in Jesus, God had forgiven them. I mean, think about Peter. You know who denies Jesus, and then the grace that Jesus shows Peter when he reinstates him as the leader of the disciples. Think about Thomas, who was so filled with doubt, and the grace that Jesus shows Thomas, even in the midst of all of his doubts. They each must have had this moment where God's grace hit home in their hearts, and it really transformed them. My. My wife and I have been watching the show Doubt and Abby lately. Any fans out there? anybody a fan? i know I don't recommend all of the show and I know for okay for all the guys out there, you can take my man card and just punch a hole in it, cut it up, shred it at the end of this because i 'm going to do an illustration from from the show really quick um, i I was at a table with a group of guys a couple weeks ago and we were talking about what we were watching on TV and they were watching all these really manly shows and I was like, oh, I'm watching Dad and Abbey. And they were like, we watched it too, it's so good. Like, what do you think about what happens in season three? And it was like this big conversation and everything. And I was like, okay, good, I'm not, I'm not too far out on my own island here. But there's this interesting moment in, in the show where Mary, the main character, very early on does something that she comes to regret. It's this shameful moment of of, of sin where she carries the, the shame and the secrecy and the isolation of that moment mostly to herself. And while the show goes on, she's falling in love with one of the other main characters, and she's drawn to him, she wants to give him her heart, but she knows that if she tells him this secret that, that he will think very differently of her. And she actually says to him at one point, he starts to get the sense of, I think there's something she's not telling me. She says, if I tell you what happened, you will hate me. That's what she believes in her heart. A little later on in the show, in this moment of vulnerability and desperation, she opens up and she tells him what happens. And he kinda pauses and she's met, not with rejection or or hatred that she expected, but, but actually with forgiveness. And, and with this really cool, cool moment of grace where he tells her that he still cares about her. And it's really powerful to see the transformation that happens in her heart then. She goes from being cold and, and kind of standoffish and, and just in, and very reserved to, to warm and, and open to commitment and, and even eventually kind of gives him her heart and in and relationship and, and what happened there? Grace happened. And grace is one of the most powerful forces of transformation in the whole world. That's so true in our human relationships and how when someone shows us grace, it transforms us and what we feel towards them. And it's so true in our relationship with God. Man, I think that's what happened with the disciples. Their hearts just realized, oh my goodness, God God loves me, he accepts me. I remember in my own life as an 18-year-old when that hit home for the first time. There was so much sin, so much brokenness in my life that I was so ashamed of, and when it hit home that God loved me and accepted me, I just couldn't believe it. It hit home again as as a seminary student. As I was walking through the difficulty of of seminary and wrestling with the challenges and the brokenness in, in my own life, and it hit me anew. Andrew, God really loves you and accepts you. He forgives you. I just thought, wow, I, I can't believe that. It actually hit me this week as I was working on this message and I was reflecting on um, an area of my life where I felt like, man, Lord, I really could have done better following you there this week. And God just reminded me, Andrew, I still love you. I still accept you. Come on, keep going, keep, keep following me. And there's just something that that does to my heart where it's like, wow, God, thank you. Thanks that you still love me. I, I wanna follow you. It's not this, this obligation, it's, it's this desire. So for you, have you experienced the transforming power of that grace? Man, you can know it today by putting your faith in Jesus. That is all that it takes to go back to that word believers. These are the people who believe in Jesus. Oh, believe in his name. You can know his grace today. Turn from your sins, trust in him. And then man, for those of us who do know God's grace, are you continuing to trust it day to day? Sometimes we so limit the scope of God's grace. One final quote that I wanna read you from Paul Paul David Tripp. He wrote a book called Parenting, 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. It's an amazing book that I'd really recommend. And what he says here to parents, I think applies to all of us. He says, most Christian parents have a fairly good understanding of past grace. That is the forgiveness they receive because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They have a decent grasp of future grace the place in eternity that's guaranteed them as a child of god but the problem is that they have little understanding of present grace right here right now benefits of the work of christ for all of us this is the grace that's present right now for your current struggles your current failings the ways that you feel you've fallen short this is the, the mercy and, and the patience to deal with a difficult situation again in your family. This is the grace that can bring a change of heart in a broken relationship and, and melt a heart that's like frozen and cold and, and transform it into a heart that's open and, and just warm towards someone else or, or even towards Jesus himself. There's something that, that God just calls us to, just to open our hearts to, to that grace because his great grace was on these Believers, and his grace is still on us today. It can be when when we trust in him. So as we come to the end of, of our passage, these are the characteristics that we've seen in these early believers. They were committed and surrendered. They were empowered and transformed. They were completely committed to God and his people, surrendered to God with their possessions. They were empowered by God's spirit and completely transformed by his grace. And I think God is calling us to that kind of commitment and surrender, and he promises to empower us and transform us with his spirit and with his grace. As I I thought about these um, characteristics, I thought about just what I see right now here at First Free. I, I see so much of this in our church. I see volunteers who give of themselves week in, week out, just wholehearted committed to Jesus and to his church. I think back on what God did in our church with the Peru church plant and the the opportunity that we had to sponsor many children from that church plant and just how open-hearted and generous our church was and we on staff were just blown away by the amount of money that we were able to raise in a single day. That showed surrender with our resources here at our church. And then I just know so many of you who are out ahead leading the charge, setting an example for Jesus. And I think even of our elders who this weekend are at a retreat praying for our church, seeking God's guidance for the future of our church. And we're just so blessed to have elders who lead by by example and and know those men and, and just how they lead and how authentically obedient they are. So I'm seeing this happen at our church in just so many amazing ways. And I know God wants to do it more and more in our hearts. You know, How do we do that? How do we step into it? We ask God to empower us by his spirit and to transform us by his grace. Every day, just we keep following him, staying close to him. And so we're gonna close now with a time of worship, and normally we do three songs at the beginning and and one song at the end. Today we're actually gonna have a slightly longer time of worship where we're gonna do two songs, and I encourage you not to rush too quickly to what's next. I know sometimes when I'm in the pew just worshiping with our church, you know, the sermon's over, last song, and I can start, I mean, anybody already thinking about their lunch plans already? (laughs) You know, or whatever they've got going on, whatever you've got going on Sunday afternoon, Don't rush too quickly out of what God may be doing in your heart. Take some time, draw near to him. If there's a way that you need empowered by the Holy Spirit, tell him about it, ask him about it, ask him to guide you and lead you. If there's a a way, a struggle, a place where you need grace, ask God to meet you there. He will be so faithful to. As we sang earlier, every triumph, every failure, you're loyal to me, God. Man, that's, that's God's great grace. All right, let's pray, let's draw near to that grace. God, thank you so much for your incredible grace that is available to us in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that if there's anyone here that you're drawing to step into that grace for for the first time today by trusting in you, by putting their faith in you, would you just work in their heart so powerfully Would you you lead them to to take that step, God? And and for the rest of us, we've seen a a high bar here, an example to to imitate, God. Help us to be committed, help us to be surrendered. And if there's a specific way that we need to step into that through obedience, help us to to be faithful, God. Not not in our own strength, not depending on on ourselves or our resolve, but asking you for help. Help us to ask for, for help now. God, we are so deeply thankful for your goodness. We are incredibly thankful for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.